As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Rogers Arena was full again. Sometimes the fans were excited, sometimes they weren't. But here on the VanCast, we are always excited. Farhan Lalji and Thomas Drance back at it on a Wednesday morning following the Canucks home opener, the first of a seven-game homestand. And um, mildly uninspiring 3-2 to two loss to the Minnesota Wild. Drancer, first of all, before we dive into the game, you know, we were both just eagerly anticipating home games full fans at Rogers Arena, you know, after getting that electric atmosphere on Saturday night in Seattle, we were really looking forward to our fans, just that organic Vancouver feel and eh, opening was great, but then a little bit hit and miss, but hey, I was excited to see you and all the media guys again. Yeah, I was excited to see you too, although I didn't see you until the third period, despite them sitting you right beside me. Um, I think you got lost in the press box, something like that. No, anyway. I, you know, I forgot that I that they had moved me because in the preseason I had asked them to move me next to you and and most of the other writers because the TV guys generally are on the far end, right? We get we get marginalized way out there. We get profiled. Ah, so anyway, right. I forgot that they had moved me, so I was over on the other side, and there we were. Fair, yeah, and so I mean, the crowd was into it. 
at the start that O Canada was really good. Like that fight song version of O Canada led by a doctor, which was a nice touch. I thought that was great. The player intros, the reaction that some of the young core got, you know, some of the fan favorites. I thought that was pretty cool. Like I thought there were some great moments. Those are, those are moments where, you know, the production and the fan reaction, you know, a reminder that like, yeah, you know what? It would be cool to be a, a big deal and play for this team in this city. You know, like we haven't had many reminders of that over the last 20 months, right? Playing for the Canucks, it seemed like it would be a drag for much of the last, certainly, certainly all the last season. That was a moment where it was like, yeah, that'd be cool. And that matters. Like that matters. You know, I, I always thought the, one of the key reasons that the Canucks got some below market guys earlier in the last decade was like the reaction to the Olympics, right? Like I think of so much of the hockey world's eyes were trained on Vancouver and when, you know, the 2010 celebrations after Canadian wins happened, it was like, oh man, it would be cool to win there. You know, like I think that helped get some deals done below market. I think it helped some local guys, some guys like Dan Hamhuis and Jason Garrison sort of decide that they wanted to come here. We have th- this franchise hasn't had too many of those moments <laughs> since. No, the hype <laughs> video I thought was fantastic. The hype video was amazing and the crowd reaction to it was amazing. And the crowd during the intros and during the anthems, incredible. And then the game started and the wild just kind of had their way with the Canucks. And, you know, this wild team is really fast. they they work really hard. Like it's good for them. You know, they're there. They've got big bodies on every line. And we kind of talked about this on Monday. And I said, you know, this is, this is a tough matchup and it's going to be a tough matchup in particular for the Canucks third pair. And I think that came to bear. Like, I think that, Proved itself out, right? The third pair had a really tough night and Canucks just made too many mistakes. Like, you know, Tucker Pullman goes down to block a pass in the neutral zone, like, you know, that on the Zuccarello breakaway. And that kind of took the air out of the building. Um, kind of got back, kind of got back a little bit after that power play goal. But, you know, until the Bo Horvat rally goal made it three, two. Like, I don't know that there was a pulse, frankly, in that ga- in the game itself. And that translated into the energy that the fans were giving too. And so, you know, it, it was sort of a complicated home opener. Like it wasn't an unqualified celebration, even though it was a celebration. Um, it felt more like a community celebration, like a yay, we, you know, 600 days since, and now we can safely do this per the authorities, you know, <laughs> As opposed yeah. to a celebration of this team. <laughs> well, and you know, you, you rarely get an acknowledgement like that from Travis Green, but he was pretty aware of it in the first period, or sorry, pr- uh, pregame, I should say, uh, in the morning skate when he talked about that, that, look, this is different than just any other game. And, and he acknowledged the meaning of the fact that these guys got to play at home again and got to play in front of their fans and all of that. But getting back to the game, it really felt like there was no moment where the Canucks control the game at all I mean you look at the Seattle game and they started out well they took that penalty and then all of a sudden the ice tilted and then they finished well and for the most part you know the Buffalo game maybe notwithstanding there's there's been moments where the Canucks were clearly the better team I'm not saying throughout the game but there were sustained moments there was none of that last night there was no moment where there was sustained heavy pressure yeah they you know they snapped it around in the power play I suppose before they got the chase on goal but even the Horvat goal came out of nowhere. There were there were just no moments where it looked like the Canucks were fully dialed into this. Or maybe they were and they just were outmatched. Yeah, I don't think I you know, I don't think work rate was an issue, right? Like that's the that's the part that's actually concerning. This was not like the Buffalo game, right? Like this was 
and 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 this was not like 2019-20 or 2021 where the club was giving away a ton of five alarm chances. I mean, the Wild had their chances, but like I don't think they were, you know, demolishing the Canucks' defensive structure shift after shift. Like the Canucks were making a mistake here and there, and the Wild were generating here and there, and Demko made a couple of big saves, but you know, fundamentally. The problem with this game from a Canucks perspective was just that they spent no time having heavy shifts of their own. Like they spent zero time sustaining offensive pressure. Everything was one and done. Or or they'd get established in the zone, but just wouldn't generate a chance. And it didn't feel either like they couldn't get past Minnesota's like, you know, heavy, you know, heavy, solid defense. Like it just felt like they were kind of frittering the puck away. Like they're just not aligned or in sync offensively right now and you know I I looked at it after the game and they're last in the league generating expected goals they're last in the league generating scoring chances in terms of the rate at which they're doing so five on five and I mean how can this team with all of this talent be so punchless offensively like it's it's really hard to wrap your head around but I do think fundamentally it comes down to the struggles that Pedersen's having right um and the fact that even this Bo Horvat line, even though Horvat has scored a lot and Garland has been productive, like they just, they're, it's all against the grain. There's just no sustained pressure there. Um, you know, this team's key offensive guns are what have kept them quiet right now, as opposed to maybe the problems we anticipated, which were just like overall depth issues and in particular defensive issues. Like that, the, I mean, not to say they're not there. It's not like the Canucks are some lockdown team, but they're not atrocious defensively. They look below average defensively. The, where they've looked atrocious is generating offense. It's 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 quite a surprise. Yeah, there, there's no question that it does look different and different than what we expected because, you know, when you consider their problems a year ago versus what their problems are now, it is completely different. And from a possession standpoint, I mean, I you know, I saw some numbers after two periods where the Canucks had 60% of possession, but it didn't result in anything in the way of scoring chances. It was the most meaningless possession you could possibly imagine. It's that, you know, it's that, you know, you know when they say when you're, when you're laying a lot of hits, it means you don't have the puck. It, it, it was kind of like that in reverse, right? There, there was just nothing there with the fact that, they had the puck and we'll start with the Pedersen line because look, we we've talked about this on previous pods and we've given Pedersen a pass because, you know, he was late to the party and didn't go through training camp and things like that. And beyond that, he missed a good chunk of last season. It had been eight months since he'd played meaningful competitive hockey. So we know there's going to be some challenges and there's going to be a ramp up period for him. And really a year ago, when we had no fans in the building, I mean, he was really ordinary at the start of the gate and or coming out of the gate. And then the final 10, 11 games, he was noticeably better before the injury. But at what point do we worry? You know, is there a, in your mind, is it at the end of this homestand? Is it, you know, two months into the season? You know, we, we know this kid is eminently talented, but, you know, we've seen other players that just didn't live up to an early impact. Now the numbers he's had in those first two seasons, we believe that that's a meaningful sample size and we're going to continue to draw on that for a long period of time. That wasn't a fluke. That was a lot of hockey, but at what point do we start worrying about his process, his mindset, all of it? Because at some point you do lose confidence. Totally. Well, yeah, I mean, so there's two sort of parts to this for me, Farhan. It's like, 
At what point do we lose confidence in Pedersen's overall abilities? I mean, I'm going to need to see a lot more. Like, <laughs> like 35 games of him struggling to offset the thousands of minutes in which he's been scintillating. You know what I mean? I'm going to need to see a lot of hockey where he looks like this before I'm worried about it. Because, you know, I've seen this guy play thousands of minutes live. Like, I've seen him play thousands of minutes in the playoffs, in big games, like down the stretch of the 2019-20 season, at practice. And he's incredible. Like, I, I know that. I know that he's an incredible player. So, I'm going to need a lot of games uh, before I think that he's not. And I don't think, you know, frankly, I don't think I ever will because I don't think he's going to play like this for long enough for me to adjust my opinion. Uh, and but But that's sort of one side of the coin. The other side of it is, at what point does Pedersen's slow start really hurt this team in terms of what they want to accomplish this year, right? And I think we're close. Like, I think we're already close to getting to that point for, for two main reasons. One is, like, right now, the core group's healthy, right? Like, the core group is healthy. The injuries are to fourth-line players or, you know, defensemen, like depth defensemen, right? Hamannick, Pullman, Sutter, Mott, you know. Not that those injuries haven't, change some of what the Canucks can do or hurt in, in minor ways. But it's like, you know, you have to be able to still win games even when Justin Dowling is on IR. Like, come on. You know, like that's not the injury that you get to point to and be like, if only we weren't so banged up. <coughs> on the other hand, oh, sorry. And, and, and the other side of this is they have all these games at home, nine of the next 12 at home right now, right? This team needs to have a hot start. If you're Vegas, if you're Tampa, if you're Toronto, maybe you can afford to languish through the first two, three weeks of the season. Because once you get hot, once you get good, once you start winning, you're going to string wins together. Like this team doesn't necessarily have that gear. They need to. They need to have a lead. They need to. They need to be a pace setter. They need to go at a at a good jog because their all out sprints not going to be as fast as some of those elite teams if they're going to make the playoffs here. Like right now, right now they have to win. This is crucial time for this team while they're healthy, while they're playing at home, while their schedule is a little bit lighter in terms of the quality of their opponent than it is down the stretch. This next 12 games is key and they need Pedersen to be good in these next 12 games. So it's a really interesting one where it's like, I'm not worried about him. I'm not worried about who he is as a player, but I do think that this team needs him now because, you know, they don't have a ton of time here. Uh, and, the, and the last side of this too, Farhan, is like last night was, you know, a full building, an announced sellout, but it was not filled to the brim, tickets sold out weeks in advance. Like this was not a normal game, right? Like in terms of the demand to attend Canucks hockey games live, right? Like people are still not fully comfortable being in that setting by and large, right? Like there are still a lot of people who are not comfortable being in that setting, um, who are not going to spend a ton of money to go be around strangers in that setting. And so tickets are hard. Like it's a hard market to sell in Vancouver, but also in general, like this is a something we're seeing around the league and across professional sports. Like selling out is not easy right now in the wake of the pandemic as, as we sort of approach another winter with, uh, you know, this illness that appears to be seasonal in nature too. Um, so, you know, they need to be good. Like they need to be fun. They need to be exciting. If they're going to get those tickets sold, they need Pedersen to be the draw. 
Like this is the guy that's worth the price of admission typically. And so that's sort of the other side of this coin too, is the business side impact, right? Like the fact that without Pedersen flying, without Pedersen doing things that make your jaw drop on a relatively regular basis, like how does that impact the gate? Um, you know, I think, I think it could significantly. Yeah. And for me, the challenge is not that he's not necessarily producing. It's that he's not attempting, you know, he's not trying to be that creative dynamic force. If he was attempting and it wasn't working, I'd look at it and say, okay, look, this just comes down to timing and it's just going to come around. It's like, you know, it's like shot rate. Okay. You're, you'll eventually fall back into who you are in that regard, you know, barring a Daniel Sedin type injury, but when you're just not generating the shots and you're not even attempting and truthfully, I think for me, a lot of it starts in the power play because we saw this at early stages last year where he just didn't want to take that shot right from that circle, which was supposed to be his office. He just didn't want to take that shot. And I'm seeing that again here. So now you've got a stagnant power play. Um, we were talking about this last night and you pointed out that they're not even defending him. Teams aren't even overplaying to that side to open up other things on the power play. They know it's not there right now. So that's the bigger concern to me. It's not that he's not producing. It's that he's not even attempting to produce. I was really surprised by the way that the Minnesota PK stayed narrow. We haven't seen teams play like that with Pedersen in the lineup against the Canucks power play in a long time, right? Like in a long time. At least Pedersen out there on the right circle has had deterrent value. But when the Canucks got their first power play opportunity, they were like extremely narrow and they were cheating on Bo Horvat. They were like, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to let you guys get the puck to Bo. And that's extremely telling, right? Like that to me was an extremely telling moment. Um, this is a cruel league. Teams will do what they think gives them the best chance to win. You can read a lot into how opponents behave in and around another player. And, and with Pedersen right now, yeah, I mean, I was shocked to see how they lined up. Now, Pedersen made them pay. <laughs> he made them pay with a really good, nice pass to Alex Chason. So, um, you know, perhaps we'll see that adjust back. But yeah, uh, when you combine that with just the overall, you know, inactivity, like the, the lack of time spent with the puck compared to what we're used to seeing, um, you know, I, I do think that speaks volumes. And, and, you know, I do want to expand this beyond Pedersen because it wasn't just him, right? Like it wasn't just his line. Although his line with Niels Hoaglander and Matthew Highmore, like we never need to see that again. That trio never needs to see the light of day again. They were <clears throat> sub 12% by expected goals, five on five, um, just just nothing doing. Um, but it wasn't just them. It was, you know, also the Horvat line. Like the Horvat line got out chance three to 10 at five on five, three to 10. Um, in fact, the only one of the Canucks top nine lines that was going was Besser, Miller, and Pod Colson, and they got split midway through the game. Like midway through the game, they they they, they kind of stopped playing. And then you know, I can't get too worked up about it because you saw Pod Colson's defense on the third goal on the game winner. Like you know, that was that was on him as well as Jack Rathbone, right? Like that was that was a rookie play. So you know, when the Canucks are chasing the game. When the game's in a high leverage game state, like you can kind of understand why he didn't get a ton of ice, right? Like you can, which is again, why I want to see him play lower down the lineup as opposed to playing with the types of skilled players that are going to start to have those shifts away from him 
when the leverage ratchets up, right? Like I'd rather see him play eight minutes with the same guys than play six with really skilled players because fans get excited about how it looks in line rushes. Like it doesn't help anyone. So, you know, it's a, I mean, you look through it and there's just not a lot of there from, from the Canucks offensively, at least not at even strength. Yeah, it's, it's pretty clear. And Travis Green after the game was also pretty poignant and just kind of his thoughts on it and was a little bit frustrated with what he's seeing or what he's not seeing from a five-on-five five standpoint. Before we leave Pedersen altogether, when he is playing with the lotto line with Besser and Miller, of the three of them together, it's so easy to single out Pedersen. Truthfully, I think Brock Besser's been doing some good things, but I think JT Miller is a lot like Pedersen in terms of his engagement relative to what we've seen from the best of JT Miller two years ago. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the production's there, but yeah. Uh, the, when JT Miller makes mistakes too, like he does things so, um, like he has a certain way of asserting himself on a game. And when it works, he looks like a genius. And when it's not working, the mistakes look far too casual, right? And, and so I, I try with JT Miller not to overreact. <laughs> not to overreact to those casual moments because, you know, when they come, um, <laughs> like, like they did on that one back pass <laughs> on the power play, right? It's easy to just be like, oh boy. Um, but yeah, I mean, right now, right now in terms of their on-ice shot rate, right? Like the four lowest Canucks this season are Brock, Patterson, Highmore, and JT, right? Um you know, that's, that's not, uh, obviously that's not going to cut it. I don't think that's a secret, right? Like they need, they need more in terms of danger, like the danger level provided by their top players, right? They need more than 20 mid twenties shots per hour at five on five. They need that. They need that to be in the mid thirties. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly where this is going wrong. I sort of think that the Canucks are have, have kind of flipped a dial back and are, and are so focused on not surrendering some of the odd man stuff that they pretty consistently surrendered over the past two seasons. And maybe that's taking away from their offensive game. Yeah, but it's Travis not like Green they're this games. defensive lockdown group. I mean, they've gone from a train wreck to average in terms of that type of issue. Well, and below average, but just below average, but that's a significant leap. Like you, you go from being one of the worst teams in hockey defensively to being a bottom 10 team defensively. Like, you know, that gives you a shot. Like, that's a huge change. If you told me that the Canucks would be like the 20th or the 18th best defensive team to the 22nd best defensive team this season, I'd have told you, well, they're probably a playoff team with that because of how much talent they have up front. Like, I would have told you that that's a huge development and a positive one, right? It's just that in in accomplishing that, and, and Travis Green said that they haven't adjusted their forecheck, Bo Horvat sort of suggested that it's not about, um, you know, being defensively responsible. That it's not about sort of being unaggressive. Like that's not what they think is going on. But to me, I just can't shake the idea that, you know, in addition to the losing Edler effect, (laughs) helping you surrender fewer chances on the rush. (laughs) um, You know, I, I sort of wonder if I sort of wonder if they have tamped down on some of the sellout four check game, that they used to rely on and as a result are giving up less, but are generating less. And, and this again comes down to construction for me, right? Like if you have to rely that heavily on your forwards to manufacture the giveaways that allow you to strike back, right? 
Um, if, if you have to rely on that so much because your defense isn't moving the puck well enough, right? Um, you know, <laughs> and then you sort of decide to play it a little more conservatively and you can't generate because, again, you can't move the puck cleanly enough through the neutral zone with your back-end personnel. I mean, that's that's a problem. And, and that's sort of where I think they are, even though, you know, I, I haven't exactly identified particularly how they've, they've been cons- more conservative this season yet. Uh, I will in time. I'm just, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a systems guy. I'm not a video coach. It's, it's a little tougher for me to figure it out. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, I want to get to your question on on um, uh, to Bo Horvat that you asked after the game yesterday. But before we leave the JT Miller piece, you know, we've talked a lot about players dragging people into the fight. And I think this mm. year we've used that as it relates to Connor Garland, as it relates to Bo Horvat. Last year, with no fans in the stands, we seem to connect that to Nils Hoaglander because he was always there and always visible and had that high work rate. And previously, when the Canucks were in the playoffs, it was JT Miller. And we're not seeing that. And I find with JT Miller... His fight fuels his offense and his offense fuels his fight. And we're seeing neither now. What does he need to do? Because I find it's that intangible piece in most sports, not just as it relates to JT Miller. I think that's so much more controllable. You know, your effort level is so much more controllable than your timing. And I think if we saw a little more fight from JT Miller, we might see a little more production from JT Miller. Instead, what we're seeing is frustration from mistakes, which is a little more reminiscent of what we saw last year. Not as bad as what we saw last year. And we understand that he's also been playing some center, which obviously isn't a good thing. And with Dickinson out of the lineup uh, last night, that didn't help the situation because he saw some time there. So what are you seeing in that regard? Because you know JT Miller pretty well. You've made a point of trying to get, getting to know him and, you know, on on a quirky level, right? Just in terms of a day in the life of, and you kind of have a sense of what makes him tick. How does he control the controllable in order to affect what might be a little more, you know, timing driven? Yeah. I mean, JT Miller is definitely at his best when he's a like swashbuckling marauder out there, which is why I like him. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why, and, and when he's playing fully instinctive, Right. Like that's sort of my overarching JT Miller theory is, is when he's instinctive, when he doesn't have time, he does incredible things. And when he has time, sometimes the payoff is a little bit more casual than you'd like. Right. Like the that's that's how I like to see JT Miller play. It's why I like him at the net front on the power play more than on the flank. Right. It's like it's why I like him at wing more than I like him at center along the wall as opposed to 
uh, being deliberate through the middle of the ice, right? Like I, I like when JT Miller's going and, you know, that, that just is when he tends to be the most special for me as a player. So, you know, with JT Miller, like, again, though, the thing I look at is, doesn't he have eight points? Like, he has eight points. Garland has eight points. Um, but Horvat has four goals. It's like, some of the style is there. Some of the style in terms of the production is actually there for some of Vancouver's top six forwards. What's not is the substance. Like, what's not is those regular heavy shifts. And in, in Miller's case, when I look at yesterday... Like, of the top six forwards, like him, Besser, Pod Coles, and that line early in the game kind of had that going. They were the only line that had that zone time. And, you know, those moments of sustained pressure going, um, it's just that no one else did. Like, (laughs) no one else did. And, And I don't think he had, you know, one thing I sort of thought about as the game went on was, you know, the Wild were bigger than the Canucks, and, the, and there were a few moments where I thought the Canucks got pushed around a little bit after whistles, not not so much in-game. But, um, but yeah, I mean, certainly there was no moment from any Canucks player to, like, get the crowd or the team back into it, to, like, grab the team by the lapels and kind of shake a little. And, and maybe you want that from JT Miller. Maybe you just want him to play. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, for me, when I look at Miller's game, I thought at least he was on the one line that did sort of what this team need, needs more of. And and at least his penalty killing looked pretty good. Like, I liked that unit with Justin Bailey. They were able to sort of attack against the seam a little bit. There were some, you know, moments. Although, there was that one moment on the PK where he turned back and then feathered like a, <laughs> a saucer <Yeah>. pass, like <laughs> across his own blue line. And you could hear the whole building gasp. Yep. Uh, that was that was fantastic. That was just very JT. But uh, but like I I I mean I didn't dislike his game at all. I really didn't. I thought I thought he was one of the Canucks' better forwards. It's just they didn't have enough of it. And yeah, I still I still don't love seeing him play center generally. Um, you know, and and look at some point this can you know I I had a good buddy of mine was in J Pat's mentions today and in mine saying like you know. Green needs to stop juggling the lines. Like they, you know, how can you build chemistry when you are changing the lines up every moment? Right. And, you know, I get that. But first of all, he's actually been super disciplined about trying to get Garland chemistry with Horvat and Pearson. No matter what, that line is stuck together here through seven games. And elsewhere, you're just looking for an answer, right? Like this team just needs an answer. They need something going at the top end so that they can kind of play their game. And, and, and right now they just don't. And so until you find that answer, I don't have a problem with rotating options through or trying to figure it out. Like they need to figure out something that works and then you can kind of, you know, do the rest. Like you can do the rest. You can settle in once you have something working. Um, you know, I, I think, I think in season during the regular season, greens tended to be pretty stagnant with his lines. Like he hasn't, he shifts them around in situationally, especially when teams are losing or winning or when he's chasing or when he's leading. But in terms of, you know, I mean, think about the lotto line and how long they stuck together or Louis Erickson with Bo Horvat or like, you know, Godet, Vertanen and Roussel. <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? Like we've seen Godet, Vertanen and Roussel line. Or, or, or sorry, or the vaunted Tyler Mott, Tim Schaller, and Jay Beagle line, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think I don't think unsettled lines have been a consistent theme 
for this team over the last couple of years. Certainly not while I've been observing them. In the playoffs, we saw a little bit more reactivity uh, from Green, and I actually thought that worked. Like, I thought that was a good look on the team. Um, but the, you know, I, the, the inconsistency of lines for me is just a product of where this team's five-on-five five game is. And, and where this team's five-on-five five game is, is, you know, not bad. Not bad, just nothing doing. Yeah, just but you know what? Like, I, I don't think you can take that kind of criticism about line juggling seriously because ultimately that's coaching, right? Like, what do you have that you can do? You shrink your lines. You create matchups. If this guy's not going, you make some changes. Otherwise, if you just roll the same lines out all the time and you get the same results, you're going to wind up getting criticism saying, why are you beating your head up against the wall? As far as JT is concerned, I'd still like to see some more bite. I'd still like to see a little more effort in his game, except for when he has the puck and he's spinning it across the, the blue line. But... I just I think that the team feeds off that just because he is that kind of player that his mood affects everything, right? It really does, right? I mean, when when a guy like Horvat, there's just so much consistency. He's so even keel in his approach that you know people people may feed off what he does physically, but emotionally he's the same guy, right? Whereas JT Miller has that ability to to carry the team with him in terms of his highs and lows. So I just, I, I'd like to see some more bite from him. Getting back to what you were talking about earlier before the break, as far as your question about Horvat's concern, and, and you said to him, and you were touching on this before, he talked about this is the type of team we'd like to be. And he was referring to the four check and just, how Minnesota was on them and the structure of what they were doing and how they want to be more of that type of team. And you asked him specifically that this team is a little bit better when they're more explosive and dynamic and trying to create. And maybe that's what they were potentially built to do. And how do you balance that? Is this team trying to do something that its parts may not be best at doing? Of course, every coach would like the complete player. And they'd like a team that could play both ways or three ways or however the game dictates it be played that they can function in that situation. But not all teams can do that. And this team is not there yet. The teams that can play in all situations are, you know, the Vegas Golden Knights, maybe not this year, but, you know, previously the teams that are making runs deep into the playoffs. This isn't that team yet. So they're trying to improve in certain areas, but there's a difference between trying to get better defensively and trying to completely change your identity. And is that's what's, is that what's happening here? Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, that was your question though. Was it not? To, I, I sort of put that to Bo Horvat and he kind of, you know, shrugged it off. Right. He, he disagreed. He said that in fact, their, their identity is consistent with trying to be good defensively and generating. And you know, I, I find it difficult, like I'm trying to separate or try to figure out or parcel out, I guess, like how much of this is individual struggles from top players offensively, how much of this is like trying to find chemistry with a bunch of new faces, and how much of this is, you know, systematic or by design, and the unintended consequences of being better defensively. And, you know, I, I don't have that yet. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answer yet. Um, but I think it's an open question and something to watch for as as the sample expands and as this team plays more games and, and especially should they continue to struggle offensively. Um, so how do you gauge success though, in that environment? Well, by what you're generating, like by are you if they continue to struggle to generate, I mean, at some point we need to we need to figure out why. Right. Like if this is performance or if this is 
more than that. And, and, you know, I just don't think overall the Canucks have been the defensive team that they have been in years past. I think they've been better. Like they have been better. They, they have not been surrendering the types of, you know, brutal looks away from the puck that we've seen in years past, but they also just haven't had those like dynamic inspiring you know, offensive sequences, particularly from like the lotto line, but also from the Bo Horvat line that we're used to. Like there just hasn't been a lot of down low control or, or chances. I'm just trying to figure out exactly why. And I, I, I honestly, honestly, Farhan, I just don't know yet. I don't know if it's personnel. I don't know if it's form. I don't know if it's, you know, their top players being rusty, but there's clearly something going on because this team is significantly defying our expectations through seven games in terms of the quality of their play and exactly how they look. Like I would have, I would have very much expected this team to be, um, you know, far more offensive than they have been. I certainly would not, not have expected them to be last in the NHL and generating scoring chances two and a half weeks into the season. Yeah. No kidding. But, but I, uh, but I also would have expected them to be a little bit more permissive defensively than they have been. So, you know, uh, it it does make sense to me that in in pursuing a more defensive identity, they've maybe lost some of their fastball. Like that makes sense to me. But until I identify exactly what they're doing, like exactly why that is systematically, I'm not going to say that it's systems, right? Like I, I I don't know at the moment. I'm just observing a trend and and trying to figure it out as as honestly as I can. But it's something that you got to be concerned about. Like this team can't struggle this much to generate five on five. It leaves you no margin for defensive error and. You know, no margin for defensive error is not how this team's going to win games. Yeah, and Thatcher Demko's been playing great throughout the early stages of the season. And, you know, that first goal of Zuccarello, I mean, just a clinical finish by him. But overall, uh, Demko, you know, and again, it's not like this team was giving up five alarm chances, but Demko was there. He's been consistent throughout these first eight games. Uh, so much so that the owner got into the tweeting act again last night. That was amusing. <laughs> Yeah, what 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 meal what meal are you buying Thatcher Demko for his great performance? What, well, we what, could bring him along with, for seafood with you and I. I still owe you. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, steak is usually how we pay out on this program, right? So, but it was it was a seafood that makes bet. sense to me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> we haven't done that yet. No, um, we got to get that done. But uh, I, I mean, you know what the you know what the tweet though told me a little bit is that, and it's not just. Francesco, but a lot of fans watching this game, I think are watching or watching this team play are watching this team play through the lens of what they did last season, right? Like everyone's like, oh, it's always the goalie for this team, you know, but it's like Demko has been good. He's been really good, but you know, he also hasn't been under duress the way he was in March of last year, right? Like he also hasn't been under duress the way Jacob Markstrom was game after game in 2019, 20. Um, you know, this team has cleaned it up defensively. Uh, their goalie's making some big saves. Thatcher Demko's played really well, but he's not, he's been their best player, in fact, but he's not, you know. He's not being uh, asked to do what not, he was asked to do a year ago. He's not thieving games like he was in March yet. Like he, he's not because the team's not surrendering what they were in March last year uh, yet. Um, you know, the, the, it's a, it's a funny moment where, you know, the context of this team's defensive struggles in the past are still pervasive in how people view this team, even though they're not pervasive in fact. Like, even though that's not 
what this team is right now. Meanwhile, uh, Jack Rathbone, a player that struggled, probably his worst game of the season so far. But again, he's a rookie. I don't think you no can question. read too much into that situation. Those games are probably going to happen for him, even in a sheltered environment. But there are some other uh, roster machinations that I want to get into. But first, uh, let's take a quick break. It's the VanCast following a season opening loss against Minnesota. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Drancher, you touched on it briefly earlier, but Justin Bailey gets into the lineup and did some good work on the penalty kill. But Bailey's a player that went through a difficult situation because he wasn't able to take part in training camp for the most part, right up until the end, just because of the fact that he tested positive for COVID. He was away from the team, uh, wasn't even in town for a while. And, and eventually he comes here, gets sent down. Now he gets called back up in the wake of a couple of injuries. Just what'd you make of his game in the small sample size? And do you think that he'll stay for a while because the club wants to get a look at him that maybe they didn't earlier? I mean, first of all, you got to feel for this guy in terms of just what's happened to him over the past year, right? Like this is a guy who's been right on the fringes. Like he is too good for the American League, frankly. And yet he hasn't been able to establish a foothold to stay on as on an everyday basis in the NHL. And so the fact that he got that look on the penalty kill, the fact that he might be an option there for the team and the fact that this team's so obsessed with having guys who can kill in the bottom of their lineup, uh, you know, that to me augurs really well for him getting a chance. And, and the fact that, you know, he, he seemed like he was about to get some run with this team last season, suffers a career or season ending injury in Toronto, like that was brutal luck, uh, comes into training camp, tests positive, crossing the border, is fully vaxxed, like not his fault, nothing you can do about it, that's the world we live in, has to miss almost the entirety of the battle and and doesn't win a job. I mean, that's not on him. They're, 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 those are elements outside a guy's control you hate to see a guy on the fringes of an NHL lineup, right? Like the fringes of breaking in and establishing himself in the NHL sort of have to deal with bad luck like that. Like, you just hate it. And so to get the shot that he got last night and to perform well, I don't think he played great, but he performed well. And in particular, he performed really well on the PK. You know, with uh, two minutes, 15 seconds of five-on-four ice time yesterday, the Canucks only surrendered one shot while he was on the ice and almost nothing in terms of expected goals. Like, other than Oliver ekman Larson, who was the team's best penalty killer and is the team's best defensive player by a lot, Right now, um, I almost feel a little bad for Ekman Larson. He's just like he's so calmly just like goes about his business, makes zero mistakes. But there's just not a lot of payoff <laughs> for him right now mm -hmm. because of how the team's performing as a whole. But man, he was good again last night. Like he was really good again last night. Um, but yeah, I thought Bailey killed penalties really effectively. I thought him and Miller looked good in that spot. They were able to sort of challenge and maybe even get out to the races a bit, maybe even threaten for some shorthanded goals, something this team has not done much of in recent seasons. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought he I thought he did well. And if he can carve out a regular niche as a penalty-killing guy or penalty-killing penalty option for this team, like, that's a game-changer in terms of their options, especially because Bailey's a guy with some speed and some offensive pop, um, you know, some size. Like, you like a lot of what he can bring if he can hang around in a fourth-line role 
and help you on the PK. But but he really does need to be able to keep that PK part of his game, I think, to establish a niche. And man, that's high leverage for him. Like, if he can become a regular penalty killer, I mean, he might play his next 150, 200 games in the NHL. Um, and for a guy who's, you know, over parts of like six seasons now, played 70 games in the NHL. Um, yeah, I mean, that would be a massive, massive development for his career. Uh, you know, honestly, like just as as a guy who's worked really hard and stuck with it and, you know, put paid his dues in the minors, like you, you kind of root for him to, to have that type of breakthrough. Certainly made a good start in two minutes and 15 seconds of PK ice time on Tuesday night. And uh, he gets an opportunity because uh, Jason Dowling not available, uh, Jason Dickinson not available. Just what are you hearing on on either front? And I mean, in, in the case of Dowling, I mean, Bailey's probably a guy that beats him out anyway if he had an equal opportunity throughout training camp. But just what are you hearing? Well, I think Dowling's played pretty well, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, he, he, I mean, he's on IR, so he'll miss at least three games uh, or at least the next two games beyond Tuesday. Yep. And then Dickinson, I'm not hearing much. The Canucks aren't saying much. The fact that he was on the ice for morning skate on Tuesday is a good sign that it's not too serious. Um, you know, I don't think the, I don't think the Pullman injury is too serious either. And that's huge. Um, you know, as, as much as Pullman hasn't like Pullman's play with the puck leaves a lot to be desired. And I don't think he should be anyone's answer on the top pair. Um, like he's played well, they need him, right? Like they need him. They had Kyle Burroughs play 18 and a half minutes yesterday. I don't think that's ideal, even though, you know, he quitted himself as well as he could have. Um, so, you know, I mean, those are, those are sort of the injury notes I'm hearing. And then of course, Hamannick's back. He's on an active roster. Um, you know, we'll see, we'll see where that one goes. I, I mean, I'm a little torn because I think it's going to take Hamannick a long time to ramp up, right? And be useful to this team on the one hand. But on the other hand, when I look at the right side of this defensive group, it's hard not to imagine that he could be helpful once he's fully, you know, fit and ready to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see where the we'll see where this all goes. But I, I mean, I think the club misses Dickinson. Like Dickinson's a really important part of this team, in my view, just because of what he limits, uh, because he's, you know, solid defensively. Um, you know, getting him back would be would be massive, frankly, for where this club is at and what they need. Well, and also I, because I, it keeps you know, JT Miller out of the middle more often than not, which yeah, is also a positive. But, but that's more of a pet. That's more of a pet peeve of mine than than something I think the team really prioritizes. No, but collectively, I mean, they are they are better when they've got their center ice group the way it was lined up. I mean, Brandon Sutter, notwithstanding, I think so yeah, they brought him here for a reason. No, oh, for sure, and he's. I think he's performed pretty well. Like I think he's off to a pretty good start. It's not. He's not a sexy, big scoring guy. He's just like a competent NHL checker who, you know, this team this team needs competent NHL checkers who also can transition the puck and, and play in the offensive end. With Hammond coming back, uh, and, and look, yeah. we, we've talked a lot about his situation, but, you know, given the fact that he's now here and he's headed to Abbotsford, you know, it probably does require a little bit of context what does that tell us about his situation? You know, there's been a lot of talk about his vaccination status. Obviously, this says this is headed in a positive direction for the club to allow him on either one of their teams. We There's also some cap implications that go with it once he's a, you know, a full-time player again. Certainly, it'll be different when he's in the minors. And then there's also the ramp-up period. Uh, Travis Green did talk about the fact that, yeah, he's happy he's back and hopes to get him back here at some point. And it took him a long time last year. And, and this guy's not had a normal last couple of seasons, not that any of us have, but he opted out and then had, 
you know, uh, was a close contact and, you know, he went through, through it differently than most. It took him a long time before we got to the point where we said, okay, he's a functional piece next to Quinn Hughes. And we've talked about whether or not Pullman's the guy that should be next to him anyway. So it, I think eventually the club would like to get Hamannick in that role. So just take me through yes. where, what they're thinking right now and how they plan to handle the situation. Well, right now he's an American League player. Right. Like he cleared waivers. There's no conditioning stint. There's no limit on when he can be down there. He's an American League player. And I'd expect him to be an American League player for a bit, like for a month, um, for a while as he ramps up and figures it all out. So, you know, that's that's kind of it for me right now. Hamannick is an option in the American League at some point. And that's it. Like, that's it. You know, I, I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit tired of talking about this. I'm, I'm really annoyed by the way that, you know, like the way that privacy has been invoked to discuss his status, you know, following a game in which like the Canucks honored first responders at length and checked the vaccination status of 19,000 fans, <laughs> like, like of a super public employee's status is a, is a matter of, you know, extreme privacy. Um, I mean, I, respecting individual privacy to an extent, like it, it does seem like having your cake and eating it too. Right. Sure. I, I don't think that's unfair to point out. Um, you know, in regards to the situation, I don't want to get too much into it because it, it's changed a lot. Like it's been a really tough one to cover in part because the story and the context and the circumstances have been fluid, have shifted pretty regularly throughout this process. So, you know, I want to, I, I mean, I want to give, them some time to present exactly what's gone on here on their own terms. Um, I want to give him some time to do that too. And, you know, I, I don't want to speculate or, or sort of go, you know, beyond that, beyond where my comfort level's at discussing it, beyond sort of noting that, you know, at some point I do think fans of this team, especially in a cap era where a $3 million player isn't just, their absence doesn't impact the rest of the team. Like it does. It fundamentally impacts the rest of the team. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that at some point fans are owed at least a partial explanation. Um, I, I hope to be able to provide that for them. I, I hope the team feels an obligation to provide that for them. And I, I think at this point, I'm just going to let it play out a little bit. But yeah, I mean, for me as an American League player, in terms of how the organization thinks about it, I, I'm sure that you know, they're keen to get him on the NHL roster, but he's but he's not on the NHL roster. He's on the NHL cap only insofar as what's retained of his hit while he's sent to the American League. He's cleared waivers. He can be there indefinitely. Um, they'll they'll figure that out in due time. But you know, I I mean, that's sort of the the basic shape of where this situation is at now that he's reported. Yeah, I'm curious to see his emotional reaction to all that's gone on to this point right because you know we, we've certainly had a lot of speculation in the marketplace i think the club has tried to be respectful of his situation and um you know handle it with kid gloves publicly and privately but at the same time they did force his hand a little bit with the actions they ultimately took yes i know he wasn't suspended but there was a scenario where he wouldn't get paid right at all and and it would all fall off their books so is that what motivated him to come back is he upset about how things were handled um you know there's obviously some deep reasoning as to why it's gotten to the point that it's gotten right so he's got some fundamental beliefs there that whether or not they were altered so i'm curious to see what his emotional reaction to all of this and the point where he's at now so i think all of that has to play itself out before the club can even consider recalling him 
and and making him a part of what's going on with the big club. They need to make sure that he's past all of that. He's got to make sure that he's past all of that. So there are some. Yeah, and he needs to ramp up physically, right? Like he needs to get oh, yeah. back into hockey shape. And as so, I pointed out earlier, yeah, that I mean, took a long time a year ago. Totally. I don't, I don't think we see him for a month. That would be my that would be my guess, but again, I don't know. So we'll uh, we'll see where this goes. The club has the ability to keep him down there for as long as they want. Well, you've and got to see, right? Does he want to play? Does he want to be here? Does he want to make sure he gets paid? Right? Like, there's a lot of motivations for players, and you know, you've you've got to determine that he's hungry to to be back in an NHL environment as opposed to just making sure he gets paid. Totally, that's a good point. Um. Tyler Mott, as we talk about injuries and roster changes, it looks like he's inching closer to a return. That'd be big. They need him. They need that speed. Um, yeah, I mean, they need him. They need him against the grain, too. And, and you know, they're, they've really struggled against teams that can throw speed at them. Like, you know, parts of the Seattle Kraken game, the Buffalo game for sure, last night against the Minnesota Wild. Like, when teams come out and just skate at the Canucks and are faster than the Canucks, like, you know, you can tell, like it shows. And, you know, I, I do sort of think like the thing about team speed is that it's fragile, right? You lose like one or two fast skaters and replace them with plotters and it shows everywhere in the lineup. And, you know, so if you're able to get a guy like Tyler Mott back and if he jumps in for a guy like Chase on, like that'll show, that'll meaningfully impact how fast the team looks on a night to night basis, even if Chase on only played what eight minutes yesterday. So, you know, I, I mean, Mott could be big for them. He's definitely their best penalty killer. Um, you know, he he might play third line for this team, right? Like they might they might play him instead of Highmore in the top nine. They should. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think Tyler Mott's you know arrival can't come soon enough for for where this club's at right now. Yeah, no question about it. And and where they're at right now is. Uh, Game one of a seven game road, uh, game one of a seven game homestand, which will continue yeah. um, tomorrow night. They take on the Philadelphia Flyers. Zach McEwen and the Philadelphia Flyers. He didn't play in the first game, but uh, is expected to go here. And then Saturday against Edmonton. You talk about fast teams. What you know, and we can't look at we can't look ahead uh, on the Philadelphia game, but you know the Canucks are, and you know that's a difficult matchup. Yeah, both of those are difficult matchups, to be totally honest, especially if Carter Hart plays better than he did in Philadelphia, right? Because, um, you know, that was the other thing I was thinking about with the Canucks offense. Like, when they've scored, they've kind of done it on goalies that struggled, right? Like, they, you know, Carter Hart and uh, Philip Grubauer in, in sort of two of their best offensive performances of the season, you know, th- th- they had bad nights. Um, but yeah, I mean, Philadelphia, we'll see. We'll see. That was an in- in entertaining game, certainly, when the Canucks... Played in Philadelphia and won in the shootout. Um, you know that I, I, that team hasn't played, I think, as well as they can. We'll we'll see where they're at. And we'll see where Carter Hart's at. It kind of all comes down to Carter Hart for Philadelphia, <laughs> and then Edmonton. Yeah, I mean Edmonton looks like the toast of the Pacific. Like they are, you know, they have Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl. They are a massive threat every time out. Um, the Canucks, you know. Played them pretty hard, I thought, in that home opener. Like, they didn't surrender, uh, uh, you know, as much as maybe they could have, considering what Connor McDavid, like, the torture chamber that McDavid habitually puts this franchise in. <laughs> but, um, but, 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 you know, I think the, yeah, I mean, those are, t- those are tough games, man. Like, those are tough games. And you, you kind of need something from at least one of them just to tread water here. You, you ideally, 
need something from both of them so that you start this home standoff with something like momentum. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be an interesting, it's going to be an interesting night on Thursday. It's going to be an interesting night on Saturday. And in particular, that Thursday night game, like Saturday, McDavid in town, you'd expect the barn to be rocking, but, uh, what, how full is this built barn going to be on Thursday night against Philadelphia? Like that's, you know, something to track here too, is, is how much, you know, how much fans are willing, um, to be out right now. Like that's, that for me is the biggest story in the league. And, and one that we're going to see play out here locally as well. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it uh, on the ice. I'm looking forward to seeing it in the stands. And, of course, looking forward to seeing you at the rink over the course of the next couple of days. Likewise, Canucks took bud. Wednesday off, which was probably a good thing. They probably needed it. They'll have lots of time to practice during this homestand. And we'll bring it all to you. The Athletic uh, also continues on a number of different channels and platforms and shows. The Athletic's investigative reporter Katie Strang joins Rob Pizzo from CBC Sports and Sarah Sivian, along with Jesse Granger from The Athletic on the Wednesday edition of The Athletic Hockey Show to discuss the fallout from the Chicago Blackhawks sexual assault investigation. And uh, we'd like to thank all of you for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave a rating and review. Subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the bonus content from our entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial and then just 99 cents a month after that. And right now, get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash the vancast we of course will return on monday and you know we talk about katie strang and just what she's diving into in that chicago situation i know the fallout from that includes joel quenville and the florida panthers along with kevin Chevaldeoff in winnipeg so we'll be tracking all of that as well of course i know you're obviously always keeping one eye on what's going on in florida so we'll um see how that one plays out a very difficult situation for the blackhawks the league and all of it it's uh yeah i mean it's it's gruesome the details are brutal terrible embarrassing and, you know, fundamentally, Farhan, like, as a leader in business, in sports, wherever, like, to me, you're either someone who doesn't tolerate sexual assault, uh, um, or you're not. And, you know, the league issued a de facto expulsion against four Blackhawks executives who have to literally lobby should they be hired in another capacity by the NA, by an NHL team again? They have to lobby Gary Bettman personally. That was announced by the league. And then in the very next paragraph, the league says, and, you know, Bettman says, oh, I'll be meeting personally, personal meetings with both Joel Quenville and Kevin Sheveldayoff. Um, expedite those meetings. Like, expedite those meetings. Get a resolution here quickly. Because not only are the actions of everyone in a position of responsibility detailed in that report, uh, from, you know, former federal prosecutor Shar galling, like galling and unacceptable. Um, but, you know, the, the two play, the two individuals in particular, Quenville and Sheveldayoff, also were less than honest about their role in all of this when they addressed it in the summer. Difficult situation for everybody involved, no doubt. As for Joel Quenville, he will meet with Gary Bettman tomorrow in New York. The Athletic will cover it. We will have all of it. And I'm sure if there is any kind of a resolution by Monday, we'll have some reaction to that as well on this show. But for now, it is Farhan Lalji and Thomas Drance signing off. The VanCast returns on Monday.